0: Mayo Clinic presents
1: The Always On EM Podcast hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Belmconda
2: Hey everyone and welcome to another episode of Always On EM I'm Alex Finch and I'm joined by my co-host Vank Belmconda To all of our returning listeners, we are grateful to have you back. And to our new listeners, welcome. Please consider liking, commenting, or following the podcast, or you can reach out to us on Twitter at AlwaysOnEM. You could also shoot us an email to alwaysonem at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts and feedback. We're here today to talk about the EM workforce. I'm so excited to introduce our guest today, an EM physician scientist and all around incredible human being, Christopher Bennett. I've been lucky to know Chris since medical school and he's now an assistant professor at Stanford. Chris, welcome to the show. You've done so many incredible things since graduating from residency. Can you tell us a little bit more about your adventures so far and the journey you've taken into EM?
3: Yeah, so thanks, Alex, and thanks for having me. Uh, so, as you mentioned, my name is Christopher Bennett. I'm a physician scientist here in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford in the Division of Research. Uh, as Alex mentioned, so I went to medical school within the University of North Carolina shortly after a small stint as a geneticist at Duke University, where I subsequently also spent a little bit of time as a Howard Hughes Fellow and geneticist. After medical school, I went to complete my residency at the four year program at Harvard in Boston. And so, a lot of the work that I think we'll talk about today stems from my work with the MGH team as well as the Harvard team focused on the workforce stuff. I am a classically trained geneticist, a recently trained epidemiologist, but I identify more as a data scientist and a health services researcher. A goal of my work is really to understand how Americans do or do not get access to care, specifically the acute unscheduled care that we often provide in the emergency department. With the understanding is, it, at least in general, People are very unclear as what we do in the emergency department and how best to get access to care. And so my hope for many reasons is shed a little bit more light on that. And in the last several months, it seems the topic has become a wee bit more controversial. So all the more important to have a little bit of data to the conversation.
1: First, welcome to the show. And when I was reading about you, I was so excited. You've been able to be on the board of directors for SAEM. You hold positions on diversity, equity, and inclusion with SAEM. You've been in roles with the New England Journal. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And the New England Journal in particular, it's kind of fascinating that they gave you a position considering that you and Alex had some controversial turning them down episode in medical school, right? What was that about? So
3: we had an article, actually, probably one of the first articles that we wrote together, which was a, a letter to the editor, which is essentially a research letter. And it was coming Shortly after a recent paper that had been actually, I don't actually know if we knew the paper was being published at the time. There was a paper in JAMA, if I remember correctly, and the JAMA article was essentially saying that, you know, doctors are working, doctors are working long hours, but it's okay. We should just let it go. And I had issues with the article, not for anything philosophical, although I really don't like the concept of working 32 hours a day kind of thing. But an issue with the stats, and an issue with the method, and an issue with the data. And so we were curious at the end of the day, what the actual data looked like. Specifically, if doctors are working, are they working past what they should be working and the reasons why? And it happened to coincide with a piece. And it was a little controversial in the sense that we argued there was a very obvious issue with confounding in the paper. And we had the data to suggest it was more than just hypothetical, that it was actually a big concern. I got a lot of angry emails after that (laughs) that paper was published, and we had a subsequent number of papers that come on after it, still just showing the data. And so the data are what the data are, and it just shows that in general, doctors work longer, they don't report how long they work, and there's some... Quite scary reasons why they do it. So, a lot of pressures on residents to do more than what they should be doing, which I, I worry in the long run is a safety issue for physicians, specifically in the context of burnout these days.
2: We did a couple of these projects together, but it really stems from my admiration for you. You had this idea. It came from looking critically at the published literature and saying, I feel that this isn't telling the whole story, and I want to better characterize the workforce. It seems like you have started to build a whole career around this question of who are the people working in our workforce and and what exactly are they doing? You've published a number of things since that time. Tell us more about your current work.
3: So I think the The most recent work and the one that's gained the most attention has been doing a bit of an updated analysis of the emergency physician workforce. And when I say emergency physician workforce, I'm saying every woman, man, and individual who is a physician who walks into an emergency department and says, I'm the doctor and I'm here to take care of you. And so we look at these folks, where they're practicing. Uh, we take a step back and say how that's changed over time. And then we look at the relative characteristics. You know, in South Dakota versus South Carolina and New York versus North Dakota, what are the differences in these individuals, both with regards to their training backgrounds, their age, their board certification status? as well as the rates of them leaving the emergency department, not being clinically active. We published an initial piece in Annals of Emergency Medicine, which gained a little bit of attention. It was covered in the Washington Post. There was actually a subsequent editorial by Annals. And then from that, we launched into then looking at individual groups. And so we've had three or four papers beyond that initial report. And I mentioned to Alex early we have one paper that's still under embargo, which I think will be unfortunately quite controversial, but I think it will make a more complete story. And we have two additional papers to sort of supplement this recent workforce project paper that was in Annals by Dr. Marco, looking at the 2030 projections and the surplus. It seems to be everyone's tongue.
2: You were a geneticist first. Now you're an expert on our workforce. What drew you to these questions?
3: I think a lot of it was just a curiosity about who was providing care and where in the country. A portion of it was just location to Harvard in the sense that the Emergency Medicine Network, which had in the past done this, Dr. Gendy in Colorado, who had published, I think probably one of the earlier studies back in 2008, which is extremely important and helped defining at that time what was going on. And so I think those two together and just an interest in wanting to get a bit more understanding in how to handle different data sets, I've not done too much in the way of work in this particular niche. I think all those together led to it. A part of it probably also stemmed from the fact that I've done several studies and I've been still interested in looking at trends in the demographics of populations, both emergency medicine residents, as well as basic science faculty, and looking over time and see the composition of the larger workforce, both on a basic science level, as well as academic emergency medicine and just clinical medicine overall. Because I think at the end of the day... It's a responsibility for all of us to better understand where we're going and also some of the barriers that prevent a workforce from being very reflective of the population of patients that they serve. And so I took that to heart and I did what I could using the data that I had available to me.
0: And Chris, boy, you've done a remarkable job. I'd really like to focus in on the 2020 study. And for those listening that want to look it up, it is the National Study of the Emergency Physician Workforce 2020, published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, December 2020. And Dr. Bennett is the first author. Chris, can you walk us through how this study was conducted? Of
3: course. So there are several data sets in the country that allow us to understand essentially where doctors are, who they are, and their background. The one that is most commonly used both by people in my group here at Stanford, by my team at Harvard, and also just by really anyone on the topic is the American Medical Association Physician Master File. And so that is a file that, you know, when you start your career in medicine or when you are an international medical graduate coming to the U.S. for career in medicine, you're registered. And so there's a, an ID to say that it's associated with you. And that is a database that includes a, a density of information about you. It tells you when did you finish? Uh, what is your location? What's your age? We can link that to other data sets that also tell me what's your board certification status? What are you board certified in? There's a geographic component that lets me also know sort of where you are, and then I can link that to other data sets, and so specifically with the American Medical Association Master File, American Board of Medical Specialty Certification Data, as well as some information from community surveys and U.S. Census Bureau Statistics, what we did was took a look at least in 2020 where physicians were. We then looked back to 2008 to identify where physicians have been going, specifically by region, by, you know, urban and rural areas, whether physician densities were increasing or decreasing, and then sort of to ask the question about whether the number of emergency doctors were increasing, where those increases were felt, whether those increases were in disproportionately board-certified physicians, and then to better understand just a little bit the characteristics of the group. Overall, we find that, as expected, there are more emergency physicians in the country, and there are more board-certified emergency physicians. And that in many ways is just by proxy, as more and more emergency medicine residency programs have developed, you have more doctors going on post-residency training to get board certification. Right. Um, And that was sort of the expected finding. But what was not expected was that in areas in the middle of the country, essentially taking a line and running from North Dakota down to the top of Texas, you have people, you have obviously less population than you would in New York or California, but you have people but you don't have as much doctor coverage or density is a better word i guess and that physician density has been decreasing in disproportionately large and small rural areas so essentially to say we've got more doctors but those doctors aren't spreading out across the country to be quite honest with you they're leaving and what's even concerning more is that in these areas where doctors are already leaving and we know that the density is lower these physicians are older these physicians are near the u.s retirement age and so we're having this conversation in 2020 looking now at 2022 and then four or five years forward, they're also going to be the ones to leave. And so there is desert or this term that we coined collectively, this EP desert, which is just going to get worse. The borders are going to expand and it's going to create this vacuum. And this vacuum has led to a lot of things. You can, you can talk about telehealth and or, you know, telemedicine in general and or non-emergency physicians providing care in these areas, but something's going to fill that void. And it's sort of a warning flag to say that this is here The question then posed to the community is what do we do about it?
1: Do you think that physician desert that you talk about, is that unique to emergency physicians?
3: It's a good question. And I will be very blunt in the sense that I have a cursory view of the non-emergency physician workforce literature. I do know that overall, the number of residents has increased across the country. I also do know overall with the paper that we currently are working on, paper that's coming out. That you know, primary care specialties have seen differences in the distribution and densities of residency programs. I hope that it's an isolated issue to us and that there are other doctors here to fill that. But I worry from my preliminary view of the data that it's not too terribly unique, but it is one that we have been feeling more. And the reason why I say this is my understanding of the literature is, you know, I'm looking at the numbers here in front of me. The number of emergency department visits in the country is. Basically, on the order of like 150 million. And we've seen about a 50 to 60% increase over the last year. So we're just providing more care. And that's with the understanding that Americans are not as much utilizing primary care doctors. And so we're the people that they're coming to. So even right. in increases of other docs, we're the ones filling the burden of care.
2: You also have subsequently looked at different subgroups. And one of those subgroups is pediatric emergency medicine physicians. In looking at your data, it was staggering. When we talk about a desert, it's amplified even for some of these providers. Can you tell us more about that?
3: Yeah. So we know, obviously, you you and I, we both take care of kids. And at the end of the day, it is a part of emergency medicine in particular, we are all All of us in general are trained to take care of critically ill children and to be very good at it. But I think we also know that mortality associated with children is quite high, and that can be the result of trauma, unfortunately, the result of gun violence. But you also have a sizable population of children who, because of advances in medical technology, are living longer, despite more increasingly complex comorbid conditions. And in those situations, individuals with additional specialization in pediatric emergency medicine are in some situations, far more versed in the recent literature and far more versed in procedures for us that are just not as common. And the curiosity was, well, we know that overall, there are a lot of emergency docs in a lot of big cities, but not as much in small cities. Is that the case with pediatric emergency medicine as well? Because again, if I'm going back to this EP desert, and I have a 55 year old patient who needs to be transferred to a cath lab, reasonably to say, although there is a desert, we could potentially get that patient to a cath lab. Now, if I have a patient with a very rare genetic disorder for which there are only four or five potential treatments, the time from, you know, a rural North Dakota city down to a pediatric or a designated pediatric emergency physician or a pediatric hospital, we were curious what that would look like. And unfortunately, it looked like it was a bit worse. As you would expect, larger cities in general tend to have higher distributions of people who identify as a pediatric emergency physician And those are usually associated with dedicated children's hospitals. Obviously here in Palo Alto, we have a hospital that's essentially just a pediatric hospital. And so we are obviously one of the areas where you have it. And then in Boston, we have the same situation. But when you look outside the major cities, you're just not seeing them. You're just not seeing them outside large cities in general. And so this desert, as you mentioned, is essentially just our little drops of uh, water and not large sand across the country. And it was, again, just to sort of take a look beyond and say, well, what's it like for the kids? And as you would anticipate... There are a number of older physicians in that population who are not board certified in pediatric emergency medicine, some of which are not actually even board certified in emergency medicine, who are still providing care. And those people in general, also, it seems to be in more rural areas as well. And so again, in the coming years, you have an older population of people who are going to leave the workforce in this area where you do not have availability or access to these pediatric emergency physicians. It's just going to worsen again.
2: Did I read correctly that there may be even full states where there may not be a PTM physician or, or just one in some cases?
3: Correct. I mean, so, again, looking straight into North Dakota down, there are some states where there just isn't any coverage. And when you have three or four docs that are leaving, there's not going to be anyone. You can approach this in two ways. You can say, well, then we as physicians or we as emergency doctors are just going to have to step up and be more facile with procedures that we're not as comfortable with or we're going to have to redouble our efforts to make sure that the emergency departments that we do have have pediatric capabilities. And that can mean a lot of different things, ensuring that we have nursing staff that are available to us with pediatric training, ensuring that we have relationships with pediatric hospitalists, or ensuring that in terms of triage networks, although that we may not be able to do every 101 things for the kids who need 101 things, that we have people that we can transfer and transfer agreements to. So a little bit of doom and gloom, but mostly just, again, a warning flag to say that there are things that are happening, things that are happened, but again, posing to the community, what are we going to do as a result of the data?
1: Expanding upon that, you're alluding to ways that we as a specialty are going to evolve. Can you be more explicit about that? You touched on telemedicine and what do you think is going to happen to fill this EP desert?
3: I think that we have seen telemedicine, most notably in the setting of covid become so much more common, presuming that if you were to take a poll of any room of doctors, people who have been exposed to or have actively provided care via telehealth or telemedicine is approaching high double digits. And at some point will become the majority, if not the entire bulk of us. And so I think in these areas, there are people who are filling this niche and providing care without physically being there. And that could be individuals who are staffing emergency departments, uh, in states they're not in, or people in just local counties. And I sort of think that is the first and foremost thing that will happen and will continue to become more common. And it has happened and it's widely accepted. There has been literature to show that people are perfectly comfortable talking to a doctor over their phone or on a computer, even in the setting of an emergency department visit. I think, as well, what we have seen, and there is again, this is coming from literature that there are a number of non-physician providers in emergency departments, both nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. And so in some situations, that's an expanded coverage under the supervision of a board-certified emergency physician. And so you you expand coverage by having the ability for non-physician providers to increase the number of patients who can be seen. And in some situations, there are the increasing numbers of independent practice for non-physician providers. So independently practicing nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. And as I think over the last six to seven months has demonstrated, more and more states are becoming more comfortable with that. And I think that will honestly, in some situations, in the absence of doctors going to these spots, I think that is going to be a way in which an increased number of Americans get the acute unscheduled care that they often get in EDs.
1: Do you see that evolution that's filling the mid-portion of the US as different than what evolution might happen, say in rural coastal states?
3: Not necessarily. I mean, when you look across the seaboard, both California on the West Coast and you know North Carolina on the East Coast, you have more availability and more access of docks. And that in many situations is because coastal towns in and of themselves tend to have although somewhat sparse, and there's a mountain over it over the mountain, there is San Francisco, or over the mountain, there's Seattle. And so the access to that. You know, major care center that you don't currently have available to you is still there. So, a city with a population of 300 people is still on the highway to a larger city. And so, I think it's a little bit of a different situation compared to like South Dakota, where you have two states in both directions. Your major hospitals are on the opposite side of the state. So, it's not like it's just in the next state; it's essentially like two states over. And so, I think the geography in and of itself is a little bit different, and also the density that although there are less, there's still an availability more in nearby states.
1: Chris, I'm going back to earlier in the beginning, you mentioned that. When you read that paper in JAMA as a med student on work hours and whatnot, it inspired you to think whether that was valid and catalyze some other work you were doing. I'm sure you read Dr. Marco's paper on the emergency medicine physician workforce projections for 2030. Take us through how you felt reading that, what your thoughts were on its
0: validity, and any inspiration that came from it. As unusual as it may be, I want to interrupt myself here and just explain about the article I'm asking about. This is the Emergency Medicine Physician Workforce Projections for 2030, published in Annals of Emergency Medicine, December 2021. The purpose of this study was to determine the current and projected emergency care workforce, including physicians and non-physician healthcare practitioners. They collected data from 2017 and 2018 and used that as the baseline for fueling mathematical modeling. Um, as a way to analyze this question. The team of researchers included representatives from the American College of Emergency Physicians, the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians, the American Board of Emergency Medicine, the American Osteopathic Board of Emergency Medicine, the Council of Emergency Medicine Residency Directors, the Emergency Medicine Residence Association, Society for Academic Emergency Medicine, There was an outside consultant involved, as well as a team from the Fitzhugh Mullen Institute for Health Workforce Equity at George Washington University. There were also observers from the American Academy of Emergency Nurse Practitioners and the Society for emergency physician assistants. This group of people decided, as part of the study, to identify the number of unique people providing emergency medical care in the country using Medicare claims data. And they were able to determine the physicians amongst them using the AMA master file, as well as identify the nurse practitioners and physician assistants within that group. As a smaller subset, they picked out the non-emergency physician physicians providing emergency care. Such as internal medicine or family medicine physicians in the country as well. They used varying projected growth models for all of the different professional lines, and they projected growth rates at zero, two percent, four percent, etc., to calculate their models. Based on historic data, they were able to calculate some attrition rates as well, and all of these require many assumptions, which they very nicely articulate in the paper, and I would encourage you to read it. After gathering all of this data, their mathematical models were used to try and anticipate what might happen to the physician workforce in 2030, and there was some concern that it's possible that the physician workforce may exceed the job availability and demands from the community, especially based on physician assistant numbers and nurse practitioner numbers, as well as their productivity. There are lots of assumptions that this is based on that drive the math, so nothing is written in stone, of course, and certainly the world has continued to evolve and change even in the short time since this study came out, but study itself really puts a spotlight on an area of potential future concern for physicians. I hope this is a useful summary so you can follow along in the discussion that we're about to have, but please read the paper as I think it's an important study in our specialty. Okay, let's get back to it.
3: So I think it is a brilliant paper. I know a number of the co-authors and I think it is the paper that everyone wanted to read. I think we were able to start the conversation we've talked about attrition and you know we talk about supply and demand and you know changes on a state level and a regional level i think it was a it was a big bomb in the room i actually remember hearing about some of this data peripherally uh, and preliminarily uh, speaking with a couple of groups both of my involvement in organizations like asap or sam and i remember anticipating seeing something like a surplus but i didn't expect it to be high i think that the paper is valid i think the the methods are sound the the people that they have used have been doing this for many years and they have done workforce reports that are well, you know, outside just emergency medicine. And so it comes with a wealth of knowledge and expertise. I think obviously, you know, being the third reviewer or reviewer number two or the, the person in the backseat, there's always things I'd like to see in the paper. I think the question for me is the way in which the modeling has done looks more on an overall level. I'd be really interested to see more granular data A lot of what I do, I mean, if you were to Google me and pull up any of my papers, I find any way possible to put some maps in my papers because I think it adds a bit of visual, a sort of semi-quantitative qualitative understanding of what's going on. It's more easy for a reader to find their home state, to figure out where they are and to know the geography. And I don't think that that's there in that paper. I hope that the methods are wrong. I hope that the surplus is not going to be as profound as it is. I worry that they are correct. But I also worry that that surplus isn't going to necessarily be, it's not going to fix the problem. When I say fix the problem, I say fix the poor access of care that ASAP has given us a D plus for in terms of how Americans get their care. I worry that that surplus is not going to be felt in rural America. It's going to be felt in California where the market's already competitive. It's going to be felt in states where there are already emergency doctors. Residents don't work in places that are not too different from where they trained. And if the density of emergency physicians are training in residency programs in very dense areas, they're going to stay there unless they have no alternative and unless they're willing to take some significant changes in their lifestyle, which they've not done historically. And so I think a bit more component of context with geography would have been extremely helpful for the reader. And it would, for me, have answered a number of questions about what it looks like and where.
2: As a geography major, I always appreciate more maps and I'm glad we see eye-to-eye on that. For our listeners who might not be familiar with the workforce report, how would how would you summarize it?
3: I would say, in a nutshell, that emergency medicine is a new specialty. That after we showed the world that we were able to do things quite well, that they could not do, with constraints that they were not comfortable with, we filled a vacuum. And as that vacuum became more and more ubiquitous to be filled across the country, the number of emergency physicians trained by emergency medicine residency programs increased there has been some concern that in light of calls to get more docs and more EDs that we might have overstepped and we might have basically set us up to a situation where in the coming years the supply exceeds the current demand and based upon current rates of care current rates of coverage and accounting for some levels of attrition from the workforce as well as some level of care being provided by non physician providers that in the coming years, there's going to be a surplus potentially of around nine to 10,000 emergency physicians. In light of COVID, where we saw decreases in ED visit volumes and a subsequent decrease in the need for EPs, and the basically people losing jobs and salaries getting cut, it's a bit more poignant. And it comes at a time where people are very concerned about the stability of their careers and very concerned about the longevity of the jobs that they have. Still quite compounded in the sense of increasing number of residency programs of CMG. uh, And it has been a bombshell in the community i mean it's on the, the lips of everyone in the space that i'm in and for a lot of different reasons but mostly just because of the fear that we can see in our fellow ed docs and the calls to action by people to cut residencies or to prevent new residencies and pretty drastic movements but also has been a bombshell for us to redefine what we do is this an opportunity to expand out and to identify new areas where we're not currently formally but maybe peripherally and to redefine what it will be to be an emergency doctor in 2030 or 2040.
2: What would you say to somebody thinking about going into EM? Is it all doom and gloom, or how can someone set themselves up for success in a career in EM at this point?
3: So, you know, I, I'm a board certified emergency physician and I'm always going to paint the worst story. And that's gonna be for a lot of reasons, mostly because at the end of the day, if you walk into my emergency department, I want you to know what every sniffle and cough is going to potentially mean and to be watchful for. The worst
2: um, first diagnosis always.
3: Well, it is what we do, right? So, the, the words, and I've, I've actually had this conversation with many medical students, mostly because after this Washington Post and this Maura Kelly article came out in Annals, people were essentially just emailing me. I actually had several program directors from different programs that will not be named reach out to me and ask me about numbers, which actually led to one of the papers that we're working on. But I would say you have a couple of things going on. You have attrition from the workforce, you have attrition from rural areas. You have attrition from people who are not emergency medicine trained or board certified. And then you have a lot of other flux in the background that it is unclear whether or not this surplus to me will truly be as profound. I would say at the end of the day that if you want to be an emergency doctor, then you should do it. I love my job. I absolutely love every single day where I get to go in and put needles in people, cut open things, stop bleeding. I mean, it's just the best job in the world. You can go from room A to room B, e the extremes of pathology, and you get to take care of everyone at any time. I'm never going to be someone to say that is not something that you should do if you want to do it. I would say we are going to be giving more and more care in more and more places, and we're going to need really good, really badass trained emergency physicians. And that's what an EM residence will get you. But I would be cautious in the sense that it may be more difficult. And you may need to consider getting a job in a place where you don't feel comfortable or getting a job in an environment that you've not trained in. You may need to be able to be able to go to Bozeman and say that although I trained in Philadelphia, this is where the need is. Again, 30,000 foot view. I trained at a large academic center. I work in a large academic center. And for some people, that is not an option. And so I respect that. I'm preaching without practicing in that regards. And I would never tell people what they are or what they should be doing, but that might be something that they have to be prepared for.
1: I loved hearing about the joy of what you do. I, I feel the same way. And I feel like sometimes we don't necessarily shed light on all the joy that we have in meeting people in different stages of life and different walks of life. I agree. It's just an amazing job. In passing, you, you threw out the, the acronym CMG. If somebody's not familiar with that, can you explain what that is?
3: Was it... um. I can never pronounce his name. Uh, he is the ophthalmologist on TikTok
1: and Dr. Glaucoma He did not,
3: did he not ask that question earlier on Twitter? Um, I feel like I would just refer you there. And I, I say that because it means a lot of different things to a lot of different folks. And at the end of the day, that is, I mean, that's the next step. That's like the next conversation piece for everyone. So a CMG is a corporate management group, essentially is a private equity firm that comes into an emergency department and facilitates a hospital buying and contract by providing physicians. In many situations, these are individuals who have very little connection and or interest to the emergency doctors that they employ. And as a result of that, as well as concerns for the increasing interest and then the associated number of residency programs coming from these groups, there have been an increasing number of people very uncomfortable and very upset with them. And that's led to a number of recent op-eds and a number of recent articles, both research and editorials that have been taking a less than positive light and have left some very scathing Yelp reviews, to be quite honest with you.
1: And so just to clarify, these corporate management groups are starting training programs too, right? Yeah.
3: So the the number of emergency medicine programs has increased. The number that are being started by corporate management groups, from my understanding, has also increased more than overall. And so they are disproportionately starting residency programs and there are concerns that one of the reasons why they're doing this is to have access to emergency physicians that potentially could either be underpaid for market value or just could potentially staff markets and essentially as a supply of docs to work for the hospitals that they're contracted at.
2: Chris, I, I appreciate your expertise on all of this. I want to change gears a little bit because you've also developed an area of expertise in looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion in emergency medicine. In that first paper, you talked about looking at our workforce there was a a stunning finding to me that only about 28% of our EM physician group are women. You expanded and looked more at diversity in the EM workforce. Can you tell us a little bit about your findings there?
3: So this is where I lay very, very blanket disclaimer that although I am, I identify as openly gay and I'm married to a man, I am still um, a white man. And so I look at a lot of this with the lens and with the disclaimer that uh, there are many struggles and barriers and issues with equity equity and inclusion that I just personally have not experienced. And I speak more from a numbers standpoint and speak more from a want to see a more diverse workforce that has motivated this. I have had the opportunity to work with a number of individuals who are non-white and non-male to help me better understand and help me phrase some of these. And so a lot of the work that I've done has been led by experts in the field, uh, both inside emergency medicine and not. What I will say is, overall, we still have a predominantly white, predominantly male population of physicians. It's not distinct to emergency medicine. It most certainly is worse than other specialties, but it persists. We had a paper in PLOS several years ago with a colleague of mine from graduate school, as well as some statisticians at the network we had, that looked at basic science faculty and showed that overall, that you know, despite increases in the proportion of people who are either non-white or non-male... We still very much have in at least that population, a population that is mostly, remaining mostly white and male. From that initial paper, we took a couple of steps and then we looked at other specialties. Specifically, we did a paper that was in JAMA surgery, looking at surgical specialties to show, again, the number of people who identified as women by specialty and that there was significant room for improvement. We've also looked at the demographic trends in emergency medicine residents to show again that it's predominantly male and white, and that although increasing the rates, have been, the rates of, or the slope for increase does not represent the population proportions, and that there is a need, and that just as bluntly said as possible, the efforts that we have all been very interested in, and all very hopeful for, have just not done what they should have done. They've failed currently. So we have to figure out whether that means we scrap the book and we go back, or we really dedicate ourselves to making sure that the workforce is more diverse. Um, I have had the opportunity to work with SAM both on the first uh, executive task force for this, as well as one of the founding members for equity and inclusion. Um, and we continue to do work on this. We actually have a paper coming out in a couple of weeks that talks on this with regards specifically to SAM, which I hope will be very helpful as a reference point and a sounding block to move forward.
2: You could speak directly to program directors around the country to try and make this problem better based on your expertise. What would you tell them? I would say I'm not an
3: expert. That would be the first thing that I would say. (laughs) And anyways, (laughs) so I'm a numbers person, right? So I have five Excel sheets and two R files up on my computer here. And there's like GitHub in the background. I would say the numbers (laughs) suggest that we're just doing a terrible, terrible, terrible job. And I would emphasize that third terrible There have been people who have been very good in this space with regards to identifying institutional individual hospital level ways to increase the number of individuals who are non-white and non-male. I would say look to your peers for that. I would also encourage people to take a step back and say the medical student population is increasingly diverse. And I think a lot of this stems from identifying very early on ways to promote and to retain those individuals who then could potentially matriculate into emergency medicine. I think they're just missed opportunities. I think a program director might be interested to engage earlier, earlier on for potential applicants very early on in the sense of medical school clerkships, engaging with medical students early on, identifying individual level program issues. Do you not have a population of faculty who are interested in this? Is your department supported? Are there barriers that you are not aware of? Are there unconscious biases in the way in which you interview your applicants that disproportionately, um, prevent individuals who are non-white and non-well from being successful in interviews? and Are you acknowledging but not doing something about the problem? What does your actual effort look like? Is it in name only? Do you have one person who has 0.0036% to focus on and basically diversifying your workforce? I would say take a needs-based assessment, look at where you are and set goals. Many organizations currently are setting benchmarks and establishing report cards to measure progress and being very open about it. And I think that public show is is helpful in many ways. One, because it gives us something to refer back to. But two, it's a public statement that there is a commitment that has been made and there is a goal that we strive for. And I think more people doing that, more people recognizing that the workforce is not going to get there on its own, that it's going to require ongoing continued effort is a good start, if nothing else.
1: Along those lines, a while back, I was following Dr. Capers. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's He was at Ohio State. While he was there, he was reaching out into middle schools and high schools to engage potential future scientists and physicians, trying to figure out how he could support them on that journey and saw a tangible increase in the medical students at Ohio State. It was pretty impressive. He's now in Texas, I believe. Listening to you reminds me of, of what he was doing.
2: Chris, we haven't even started talking about an entire other area that you have developed a research passion for I've seen some of your work on HIV in the emergency department can you tell us a little bit more about how you got interested in that and what you're exploring currently
3: Yeah so this actually stems from our time at UNC and in some ways with the team that we're working with there so we we see anyone and we see everyone and we see everyone at any time and that's two o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon, Christmas Eve New Year's Eve we do very good very good job of providing care to people who need it when they need it but unfortunately as the number of americans come into our emergency departments asking for things that are more preventative or treatment for more chronic conditions we are either less comfortable or just don't feel as if that's the spot to do that type of care and in the background hiv has been one of those things i think has fallen through the cracks with emergency medicine we have a number of people in north carolina when i was there would come into the emergency department who just didn't get tested for HIV. And in some situations, it wasn't as if they were presenting with a complaint that could be consistent with disseminated AIDS or, you know, a PCP pneumonia. Um, But these are people who should be tested, people who weren't tested. And there was a one person in particular who kept coming into the ED and just was not tested for HIV. And when she finally got tested, she had disseminated HIV. And it was a missed opportunity. And it's a super quick test. It's not like you have to go out and consent someone. Well, in some states you can send someone, but it's not like you have to go in and do a paracentesis and worry about hitting the small bowel. It's it's a blood test. And now it's done, you know, 45 to 50 minutes, but we don't do it and we don't do it enough. And we don't do it with any degree of confidence. We are very concerned about the liability. We're very concerned about what we do with a positive result. We're very concerned about the length of stay. We're very concerned about disposition. And those are all valid things. But we also should be very concerned about discharging patients with undiagnosed HIV from RED who then go on becoming, unfortunately, this reservoir of people who contribute to the burden of HIV in the country. We have done several uh, several studies that have been published looking at the perception people have of their HIV or their risk for HIV is a better way of saying it. People in general, usually either the result of medical illiteracy and or just denial, have very low perception of risk despite engaging in risk-taking behaviors, specifically people who have multiple partners, people who exchange sex for drugs, people who exchange sex for money, have relatively low risk profiles. And at the same time, we've shown that a number of these people, especially people who are engaging in these behaviors frequently and people who do not have other forms of care, either those who are under or uninsured, just are not getting their care elsewhere. They're coming to the ED. You know, we're her, we're her PCP. We're their primary care team. And like we're the ones, unfortunately, having to see if the refill for the hydrochlorothiazide the previous dot gave a month ago actually got filled and it's growing. I mean, the, the number of patients we see for non-acute care is growing and it's going to be more and more of a thing. And HIV is more and more of a thing. It's something now that we have very good treatments for and we have pre-exposure prophylaxis that can, can prevent people from becoming infected. My hope, my goal, the thing that I think about at night before I go to bed beyond kaplan meyer curves and maps is how can we get more people tested? And I am trying a couple of different ways, and I'm looking at data now to really show that we're not doing it, that there's a need to do it, and show to the community that there are areas that we can target with resources that are already there, so that it's not something that we have to say, well, I don't have the time for, or my hospital can't do it, or it's someone else's problem. I want to show people it's our problem. I want to show people that we can do it. And it's not a big cell, It's something that has already existing networks that can do it for us. Making the job of the doc not too terribly difficult, but making the outcomes for the patient much better.
1: That's fascinating. And I recently heard that there are scientists working on an uh, HIV vaccine. Have you been following any of that research?
3: I have. Um, I actually don't know them personally, but know of the work. They, are By proximity, um, when I was in graduate school, familiar with some of the people in and around that area. And I think it's huge. I think it is, at the end of the day, going to be one of those things where when I look back and there are four or five medical advances in our timeline, it's going to be the one that really stands out to me. One thing that I've also been super excited about as well is some folks down at UCLA have now pushed several studies out that shows that we have long-term injectable pre-exposure prophylaxis as well. And so in addition to the vaccine being worked on in both oral as well as injectable prep that lasts several weeks where you don't have to worry about medication, non-compliance when people are at their most vulnerable and most risk. It's, a, it's an important time. It's a huge time, specifically for us in the ED because we have so much more to work with that we just previously didn't.
1: Chris, I'm curious, if I were a fly on the wall when you're taking sign out from a colleague, And you're hearing of a patient that you feel needs HIV testing. In addition to taking action and potentially engaging that patient, how would you uplift the care that your colleague was providing?
3: I trained with a number of doctors who very much instilled in me the sense that sign out is always given and taken graciously. I am very grateful for the care that my colleagues provide to my patients. I am optimistic I am able to advance that care. And if there are things that a fresh set of eyes can identify at the start of my shift that they didn't catch at the end of theirs, then it's an opportunity for success for both of us. I would say, you know, what I'm hearing is it sounds like this care has been quite complex and this workup has been extensive, but there might be additional testing that we can do to help better understand either an undiagnosed infection or potentially give patients knowledge of their status. Um, and at the end of the day, if the HI test is negative, it's a non-issue. But if it's positive, then we both win because I'm able to advance the care. The patient's able to get a diagnosis. There isn't a need, there isn't a reason to ever not be grateful or be gracious. Burnout is way too much of an issue for us, specifically in emergency medicine. And at the end of the day, I think, regardless, short of getting a in the face or someone drinking my coffee or talking terribly about a map I placed in a paper, like sign-out will always be grateful.
1: I hope that answers the question. It absolutely does you know in other communications you've described yourself as a teacher and i feel like it comes through in the way that you answer your questions they're always very instructive and that one i think was perfect
3: it's funny you should mention that in undergraduate school i actually was a student teacher for a while and i absolutely hated it it was 6th grade science it was just the worst period in my life i can deal with a lot of substance induced psychoses and a lot of complexity and critically ill patients but small children running around 20 at a time and screaming just was too much for me. So I have nothing but respect for anyone and everyone who identifies as a teacher.
1: Chris, thank you so much. This was a wonderful opportunity to meet somebody who was a big part of Alex's journey and also to get to read of a superstar in our specialty. I'm very, very impressed with everything you've been able to do and glad that you're in a position of leadership with SAM, especially with the diversity, equity, and inclusion work you're doing. We've been hearing so much about the workforce challenges or opportunities, depending on your perspective. And really appreciated that you brought us up to speed on the EP desert that we might see. I can't wait to hear more potentially about the reservoir of patients that we have an opportunity to help when it comes to HIV and age-related care. I'm looking forward to maybe engaging you more with that. Everyone, thank you so much for your attention and listening to our Always On EM podcast. Any final words you want to leave with us, Chris?
3: I would say thank you both for having me. It is always a fantastic excuse to see a friendly face, a face lasting for quite some time, and it's always fantastic to engage with other docs in different areas. I think we're in this together, and I think together we'll pull it forward. So thank you for the opportunity to talk. Thank you for the opportunity to to talk about maps more than anything, but also to talk about data, science, and the role for emergency medicine in leading us all forward together with it.
2: Hey everyone, thank you again for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, or follow the podcast. We'd love to hear from you, and I hope you have a wonderful week.
0: The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by
1: Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.